0: And really, as I said last week in the first part of this message, that most people consider this to be the most interesting part. Uh, This is the larger part of Revelation because this part extends all the way from chapter 4 through the end of the book in chapter 22. And this section is the result of Jesus' words to John in chapter 1 where he said, Write the things which shall be hereafter. So we're talking about events that will take place in the future. Uh, None of us knows exactly when this is going to happen. There are a lot of date setters out there who claim that they have some insight into this. But I really don't believe that any of us know exactly when it will take place. And uh, there's been a lot of anticipation about this. I mean, Christians have been talking about it for many, many years. And even people who aren't saved, they know a little bit about the book of Revelation. and, And it seems like there are a lot of people who have some expectations about the end times. One thing that we're absolutely certain of, these things will take place. I can promise you they will take place. And when they start to unfold, I also promise you that you will want to be on the Lord's side when all this begins to happen. Uh, There are wonderful things that happen here in the book of Revelation for those who are the redeemed of God, those who are saved. And part of that we're going to talk about in this fourth chapter tonight. But for those who don't know Christ as Savior... There are terrible, catastrophic events that will take place, and all those who reject Christ are going to be involved in these terrible things when he comes back. So chapter 4 is a dividing line between the present and the future for the church. In chapters 2 and 3, we're talking about the church age, or the time in which we're living right now. And then as we begin chapter 4, this is after the second coming of Christ, and this fourth chapter begins with the church absent. And so that means that the church plus all other believers have been raptured and also the dead in Christ have been transitioned into heaven. Those people have been raised. So the scene here in chapter 4 opens with the throne room of God in heaven. Now tonight I want to preach part number 2 of the message I began last week, the majesty of heaven. If you'd stand with me please, we're going to read the entire 4th chapter. Last week, we only read two verses, but we're going to read the entire chapter tonight. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And of course, this is John speaking. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, "'Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter.' And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne." And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper or a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. That last verse is a wonderful verse. Verse number 11. Would you read that with me? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you. Again, we stand in awe at your Majesty. As we think about this wonderful scene that John sees in heaven, the very throne room of God, I just pray, Lord, that you might open our eyes of understanding tonight to the one who sits on that throne. He's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who rules and reigns forever. And, Lord, may we see the one who is worthy of all honor and power, all glory and praise. And may we give that due respect to you as we should. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the last message, I just barely got a start into this chapter, and that's because we spent most of the time talking about the change that takes place between chapters 3 and chapter 4. So in that message last week, we first of all talked about the transition of the church to heaven. Some look at verse number 1 here with the trumpet and the voice that we read about. And the voice says, come up hither. And they take that particular scripture and think that it refers to the rapture. And so they read into this the initial phase of Christ's coming. And uh, we certainly do know this, that the Bible definitely teaches that when Jesus comes back, there will be a trumpet that sounds. And it may very well be that the voice that speaks to us may say these very words come up hither. Now we don't know exactly what the words will be. Many people believe that this is an indication of what they are. But the result will be the same no matter what those words are. In chapter 3, we have the end of the church in the... Uh, verse number 22, and then between here, uh, chapter 4 and verse number 2, the rapture of the saints and the transition of all those who have died in Christ has definitely happened. So now the scene changes. And the scene comprehends the comprehends, uh, the saints of the church age that are now in heaven and all the hosts of heaven that are there and all the dead who died believing in Christ are in this uh, scene that we see in chapter 4. So the next thing that John sees here, number 2 in your outline, is the throne of God in heaven. We'll read verses 2 and 3 again. It says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and, behold, a throne was set in heaven, And one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper on a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Here John tells us that... He was in the Spirit, and what that means is that he was in a very moment, uh, a close moment of fellowship with God, and he heard the voice that's speaking to him, and he sees the scene here that is a totally unbelievable scene unless God himself should reveal to him that he is opening up the throne of heaven before him, and he sees God on that throne. You know, it's amazing to hear people talk about this, people uh, who say that they've seen visions of heaven And I've never really heard anyone explain it or say the very same kinds of things that John says in the book of Revelation. Usually when people uh, talk about having seen heaven, and I explained a little bit about this last week, I'll say, first of all, I don't believe that anybody in our age has ever seen into heaven or has the ability to do so. But there are people who claim that they've seen these kinds of visions, and the things that they say that they saw are not the same things that John says. Now you'll hear people talk about this and they'll speak about the loved ones that they have in heaven and being able to go and see those particular people. They may talk about uh, people that are in the Bible, famous Bible characters. And they'll talk about having seen them and having talked with them. And then they go on and they talk about the city itself. They talk about the streets of gold and the gates of pearl, all of those things. Well, John's going to get to those things. He'll get to those things a little bit later. But the very first thing that catches his eye is the throne of God in heaven. You know, I can't imagine that we would get to heaven and we would not be overwhelmed by the presence of God. Heaven is a place that's built for God's glory. And everything that's there, all the people that are in heaven, the angels that are in heaven, everything has been placed there for God's glory. Now, certainly there are many wonderful things that we're going to see in heaven, but this particular vision of John, it starts exactly where it should start. It starts with none other than the Lord Jesus Christ upon his throne. So John says, Behold, a throne was set in heaven. Now, the title of my message... uh, maybe you didn't pick up on it last week because we didn't deal too much with it. But the title of the message is The Majesty of Heaven. And what I'm talking about here is not streets of gold and not gates of pearl and not all these other things that are there. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is the majesty of heaven. Now John sees him there. He says, Behold, a throne was set in heaven. Now, in some translations it reads here, a throne was standing In heaven, I'm going to use that particular word tonight as we begin uh, our study in this. There are actually three notable words that we find here concerning this throne in heaven. The first one is the word stands or the word standing. And what that tells us is that God's reign is permanent. So here is a throne that's set in the midst of God's holy temple. All of heaven is a temple for the Lord our God. Now, many... Temples have been built to many different kinds of gods. Uh, Men build temples, and they put into those temples the representations of the gods that they worship. And so you may see in a temple, and sadly enough, even in some church buildings today, you'll see all kinds of idols that are made there. You'll see the likeness of men that are in those places. Uh, Heathen temples may have birds and animals and creeping things, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 1. But the unique aspect of Israel's temple, and remember that Israel's temple is fashioned after, patterned after the temple of God that's in heaven, and the amazing aspect of Israel's temple is that there were no idols there. There was no God that was a focal point of that temple. There was no central point there that was an idol. And all of the heathen temples, that's exactly what they had. They had their idols that stood there, and that idol is the thing that they focused themselves on. But when they came to Israel's temple, they found that there was no idol there. And that's because God said you should never make any representation of anything that's in the heavens above or in the earth beneath. And you're not to worship those kinds of things. And God said, you can't make an idol of me. You can't make something to worship of me. And the reason for that is because our God is such an immense God. Jehovah God, there's no possible way that you could ever comprehend our God in an idol that could be made. So in heaven, we have God's temple, we have a throne there, and that is a reminder to us that everything that's on this earth is a changeable thing. All these things pass away. Now, if you go back and you look at the ancient temples that were built and think about the things that were in the Bible and the gods that they worshipped there, where are those temples today? Where are the great temples with their idols and all the different ones that the Romans and the Greeks and so forth worship? Where are they today? Well, they're nowhere to be found. They've all passed away. But God's throne in heaven is a permanent throne. It's established there forever. It's immovable. It is unshakable. It's uncomparable, unconquerable. It is one that stands for eternity. Now, there's some wonderful pictures here that we find in this fourth chapter, some symbolisms here that are really great for the people of God. Verse number six says that before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Now, one of the things that we'll find in the book of Revelation, and you also find it in other scriptures throughout the Bible, that the word sea is actually a symbol of trouble. Man has no power over the sea. If you remember... In our study, the book of Acts, we talked about the Apostle Paul and how he took that journey to Rome. He was taken as a prisoner there. One of the things that they had to do was they had to wait in order to continue their journey. And the Word of God says they had to wait until the time for sailing was right on the sea. And that's because men had no control over what the sea would do. And if you remember in that story, uh, Paul advised them against this, but they decided to sail too early. They left too early. And what happened was the ship got caught in a terrible storm and it was torn to pieces. Man has no control over the sea. It's restless. It's unsettled. We find also the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. Remember when Jesus was in the boat with them and a great storm arose. There they were in the middle of the sea and uh, no way to control that boat. And yet Jesus stood up in the middle of that boat in the midst of the sea and calmed that storm and quieted everything down. So when we look at this throne of God in heaven and we see this sea of of crystal, glass-like under crystal, this is an indication of calmness there. Now, there's always trouble upon the earth. Uh, Job said that man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. But when we get to heaven, there is no trouble. God's in complete control of everything that goes on there. There is perfect calmness. There is no panic. There is no uneasiness. And that's a very important thing, especially when we consider what happens in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 and on beyond there. There's a lot of calamity, a lot of commotion that will happen upon this earth, but there is no uneasiness in heaven. Now, the next word that we have here is a picture of God's throne is the word sitting. Uh, God's reign is powerful. That's what's pictured by the sitting. There's a permanent throne there, and the one who sits on the throne is a powerful God. Now, if you'll glance down there in verse number 5, you'll notice that it says that there's lightning and thunder that comes from this throne. And what lightning and thunder are are actually symbols of judgment. God alone is the one who has the power to judge the world. And the thunder and the lightning is actually a, a precursor to all the calamity that's going to be unleashed upon the earth. You see what's happened here, folks, is that God's wrath has been brewing. All all since the time that, that Satan fell and since Adam sinned, God's wrath has been brewing. And God is about to take care of the wickedness of the world and his wrath upon this world will be released. Now, if you could actually peer into heaven today, what you would see are the preparations for all this being made. If your eyes were able to be opened up to this spiritual world that's around us, you you wouldn't see Cupid sitting on a cloud with a little bow and arrow. And you wouldn't see angels fluttering around with their white rings and halos over their heads sitting on clouds. If you were able to see in the spiritual world today, you would see warfare that's going on. You would see God preparing for this terrible time that's about to come. And when John peered into that throne room of God, we can really understand why he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That's the reaction that he had because God is a powerful God. John uh, saw into the throne room, Ezekiel saw there, Daniel saw that. They saw visions of God, and when they saw into the throne room, they were all struck by the display of power. And that's because what we have here is a throne of judgment. But remember again, there's no uneasiness here. When men plan battles, there's always a, a bit of fear, there's a sense of fear because they're never sure, quite sure, absolutely sure, what the outcome of a battle will be. God's never worried about that. There is no uneasiness there because this outcome is assured. God is the omnipotent one. In 1 Corinthians, you remember it tells us there, uh, the Bible says that Christ must reign until all enemies are put under his feet. And that is not a statement of any kind of uncertainty. Now, also notice that it says in verse number 5 that there are seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. If you remember, if you've been with us in our study all the way back from the beginning when we are in chapter 1, I talked about the seven spirits and what that means. This does not mean that there are actually seven holy spirits, but this is a representation of the Holy Spirit in his fullness. The word seven there is actually a number of perfection, a number of completeness. I don't have time to go into detail on all that again, but you remember in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse number 2, there it gives us the fullness of the Spirit as he dwells in Jesus Christ. And there are seven different terms that are used there. So you might want to look that up a little bit later and refresh your memory in Isaiah, chapter 11, verse number 2. But the work of the Spirit... That's that's important here because in John chapter 16, verse number 8, the Bible tells us there that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. So the perfect Spirit of God is going to be there in this throne room of God, and there will come a judgment, and every evil thought, every imagination of the heart, every action, every intent... All of that will be perfectly recalled and brought before this judgment and judged accordingly. Now, we notice in verse number 3, it says that the one who is sitting on the throne, this is another beautiful picture that we have, is that the one who's sitting on the throne was to look upon as the jasper and the sardine stone. Now, most people believe that the jasper refers to a diamond, and the diamond is representative of the glory of God, And the sardine stone, or sardine stone, is actually a ruby. And that ruby color, of course, is blood red. And what that represents is the sacrifice of Christ. Now, you have to go back into the Old Testament. This is why uh, Old Testament studies and things we talked about in the tabernacle a few years ago are so important to us understanding uh, the New Testament. Go back into the Old Testament, and you find that there's a, a great representation of God's power to keep his children. In the Old Testament, we had the high priest, and the high priest wore a breastplate, and on that breastplate, were 12 stones, 12 stones in order, according to the children of Israel. And on each of those stones was engraved the name of one of the tribes of Israel. The first stone in order on the priest's breastplate was actually the, uh, the sardius, the sardane stone, which uh, is that blood red ruby color. And on that stone was engraved the name of Reuben. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn son. Then you go all the way through that breastplate and you come to the very last one, and that's the diamond. And on the diamond, or the jasper stone, is engraved the name of Benjamin. And Benjamin is Jacob's last son. And so the picture there is that you have the entire complement of the children of Israel... Uh, they're represented on the the breastplate of the high priest. And so when we read it here in the book of Revelation, we notice that this corresponds to something that we've heard many, many times before, as we've read, the first and the last. So you have the first stone and the last stone of the priest's breastplate, which comprehends everything that's in between. And that, of course, is what Jesus is, Alpha and Omega, first and last. And he comprehends everything that's in between. And so what this tells us is then that we are represented there in the throne room of God. We're there, and, and these stones represent us who are a part of the, of the uh, uh, reason that Jesus Christ came to the world, the sacrifice that was made for us. The high priest represents Jesus Christ. He's the type of the sacrifice that Christ made for his people. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the very same power that keeps us saved, it keeps us safe, and keeps us secure. Now, thirdly, as a word that we find here, is the word surrounded. And this tells us that God reigns with promise. And there was a rainbow round about or surrounding, surrounding the throne in sight like unto an emerald. I read something interesting the other day about rainbows. Uh, actually, I didn't know this, but many rainbows are complete circles. We just can't see them here on the ground and tell that it's actually a complete circle. But when you're, when you're flying, pilots have said that they've seen this. I've never seen one myself, but they've noticed that there are many rainbows that are a complete circle. Now, I hope you understand and know about the promise of the rainbow. And this is a wonderful thing about our God. If you remember, after uh, God destroyed the world by a flood, he promised Noah that he would never again judge the world in that particular way. He says that no worldwide flood will ever occur again. And so the symbol uh, of God's promise was the rainbow that he put in the sky. And God told Noah, he said that this bow, this is a token of the covenant that I make with you. So whenever we see a rainbow today... That ought to be a reminder to us, just as it was to Noah, that God is a covenant-keeping, a a covenant-making God, and none of God's promises ever go unfulfilled. So God makes these promises. Now, at the throne room of God, there's a rainbow there that is a complete circle. Now, all of these things are signs and symbols, and the complete circle is another indication of God's perfection. Now, as I said uh, when we see rainbows on the earth, we may not see a complete circle. But here in heaven, there is a complete circle. And this one's a little bit different because this is not a rainbow where light is broken down into spectrum like we see here. But rather, this is an emerald, uh, a, a rainbow that's totally emerald green. One color, emerald green. And what that represents, the green represents the earth. And that means that God has made another promise. And this promise is that he will judge the earth. Now, every piece of John's vision has significance. The sights, the sounds, the colors, the sitting, the standing, the the surrounding, everything that we have there says something about our God. Now, in that throne room of God, there will be judgment. But I'm happy to tell you today, I'm not concerned at all about the judgment that God is going to pass. And that's because I know that I'm uh, comprehended in the salvation work of Jesus Christ because I place my faith in him. And I don't have to worry about this because of the next part that we're going to talk about. Number three is the throng in heaven. The throng in heaven. Now let's go to verse number four where we see not only God who is in heaven and not only the throne who's in heaven... Uh, but those that are also there in heaven with him. Verse number 4 says, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now, I said that I'm not worried about God's judgment because I will be represented in this throne room. And you will be there too. You'll be represented as well if you are a believer. And this shows us that we are going to rule and reign with Christ. Now, you may remember that when we were studying about the church in Pergamos, Jesus made a statement about that city. He said, you dwell where Satan's seat is. And I pointed out there that the word seat is actually in the Greek, the word thronos, and that's the word that means throne. So Satan had a throne in Pergamos. Well, this is the very same word that we find here in Revelation chapter 4. The word seat is also throne, only we're not talking about Satan's seat. It's a seat that represents or is the throne for all the redeemed of God. Now, what John saw there were 24 thrones that surrounded the throne of God, and on these thrones sit 24 elders. These aren't angels because angels are never seen sitting on thrones, but these represent the people of God all the way back to the time of creation, who are believers in him, all the way up to the time that Jesus comes back. So there are two things that we see here. First, there are represented, the saved from the old covenant. And that means all of the people that are in the Old Testament that are saved, they're represented here. Now, these are people that were saved exactly like you and I are saved. The the precious blood of Jesus Christ was shed for them. They had faith in that blood, and so they are redeemed. And now they're seen in heaven. So we have Adam and Abel and Abraham and Aaron and Moses and David and Elijah and and all these different people in the Bible that were believers in Jesus Christ. They are represented there in the throne room of God. But not only do we have the, the saints that are from the old covenant, but we also have those that are from the new covenant. Now, the ones that we're talking about here are people in the church age, people living since the time that Jesus went to the cross. And so they're under the new covenant of Christ. And that would include people like John Bunyan and John Knox and Keach and Gill and, and Spurgeon and Pink and me and you who are believers in Jesus Christ. So everybody who's been saved since the cross up to the time that Jesus comes again, they are represented in this throne room. So here we have people that are from before the cross, and we have people that are after the cross. Now, what's in the middle of all that? The cross itself, because that is the thing that saves us. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant, every single person has been saved exactly the same way. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. And faith in that blood, that's how we're saved. So there's only been one way of salvation for all time. God's never changed this. There's never been any any type of deviation from the plan at all. God has always saved by grace through faith. And so we find then Old and New Covenant, all the redeemed are represented here in heaven. Well, a question then might come to us is, why are we talking about 24 elders here? Why aren't there seven elders? I mean, why aren't there? I mean, that's a number of perfection. Ten is a number that we often see in the Bible. Why aren't there ten elders that are on the throne? Why do we have 24 here? Well, this actually goes back into the Old Testament again. And this is when David chose 24 priests out of the tribe of Levi to represent all of the priests. Now, you see, you had so many people that were from the tribe of Levi that not all of them could serve in the temple at the same time. And so what David did, he chose out 24 out of all the number, and they represented all the priests. And then when Solomon built the temple, those 24 that were chosen, they came and they served at the temple. Well, the operative word that we have here is the word priest. These are priests that are chosen. Now, what is it that the Bible says about every single believer? Well, Peter wrote this in First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what Peter writes about every single believer. He says that you are a priest. Now, that's the very reason why you don't have to climb into a booth with some little guy there, and you have to confess all of your sins and tell him all the bad things that you've done and ask for his blessing and ask for forgiveness. You don't have to do that because you are a priest. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a priest. But the Bible also says something else here. It says that you are kings... Kings and priests. Now, to find that, just look over there in chapter 5 for just a moment. Sneak a peek over there at verse number 10. And it says there, And it's made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign upon the earth. So we're priests, but we're also kings. Now, there's a good indication to you why that there are thrones that are seen there. We sit upon those thrones. Our representatives sit there. And so we are going to rule and reign with Christ. And we notice here that the 24 are wearing robes of white and that represents the righteousness of Christ. And that's really the only basis why any person would ever be able to be in heaven. It's because of the righteousness of Christ. Then we also see that they have crowns on their heads and what that represents is the ruling authority that's been granted by God. Now, I think this is a, kind of an interesting piece of this because we're going to help him rule 'll we'll help Christ rule, but we won 't help him judge. Christ is the only one who is the judge, and so we 're not going to sit here on these thrones in judgment as Christ sits in judgment, but rather what we 'll do is we 're going to bow our heads in approval over every righteous judgment that Christ makes, and folks, all of his judgments are righteous now verse twenty four then says uh, that uh, the elders cast their crowns, I'm not not verse 24, but rather it says here that, that the 24 cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. Now, what are these? Now, lots of people are confused about the crowns that are cast at the feet of Jesus, and they get this mixed up, and they think that, well, God's going to reward us at the judgment seat, and that what we're going to do, we'll take all those rewards and everything, we'll cast them at the feet of Jesus. Now, that's not really right. Here it says that, they're going to cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. Now, these are not crowns of reward, and I'll tell you why they're not. These are crowns of ruling authority and crowns of righteousness. They're not crowns of reward, and that's because the judgment seat of Christ has not yet taken place in this scene. Now, coming up in chapter 6, we'll find out there that there are many, many people that are going to be saved during the tribulation period thousands perhaps even millions will be saved during that time and so we haven't you don't have the judgment seat of Christ yet because those people also have to be judged so the scene that we have here in heaven at this particular point does not include the tribulation saints and the judgment seat of Christ has not yet taken place now this is one of the ways that you find out the order of events of these things that are going to take place Because we understand that the coming of Christ is pre-tribulational. He comes before the tribulation period, but the judgment seat of Christ must occur after the tribulation because of all these millions of people that are going to be saved. And so when these crowns then are cast down... These can't be the crowns of reward because the judgment hasn't taken place. So these are crowns that have been given to all believers based upon Christ's righteousness, and these are not crowns that we have earned. And these crowns are the ones that will cast at the feet of Jesus, and that is a symbolism that we acknowledge, we believe, that he is the one who rules over all. So what John sees here then, or sees here, is uh, instead of millions of thrones... And every single person who's ever been saved sitting upon a throne, he just sees the 24. And the 24 represent all of those that have been saved during the time of the Old Testament and time of the New. Now, I think it's interesting that... There are some people who go just a little bit further than this, and and maybe they're right about it, that the number 24 in this particular case may also refer to the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles of the Lamb in the New Testament, and that's why we have 24 that are represented. But we find out something else in the chapter, and that is that it's not only those that are redeemed who are in this throne room. Now, they're the only humans that are there for sure, Uh, And there's not going to be any unredeemed people that are there, but there are others that are there, other beings. Look at verses 6 through 8. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had the face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle." and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him and they were full of eyes within and they rest not day and night saying holy 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 lord god almighty which was and is and is to come now the next thing that we want to look at here is the symbolism of the creatures there are four beasts that are before the throne now when you think beast don't think wild animals That's not what it's speaking about. It's talking about uh, beasts can be translated here as living ones or as living creatures. Now, these aren't men because uh, the redeemed are already seen here. They're the ones that are sitting on the throne. But rather, these are angels. uh, And they appear to be angels that are on the order of the seraphim and the cherubim because these are angels that are always associated with the throne of God and with God's holiness. Now, it says here that the four beasts are full of eyes before and behind. Now, like all things that are in this throne room, this has something to say or about the characteristics of our God. And the reason that they are full of eyes is a representation of the omniscience of God. God sees all. There's nothing that's ever hidden from his eyes. And so these particular angels represent, in this, in this particular part of it, the omniscience of the God that we serve. And then we also notice here that they have four different faces that are on these creatures. There's the face of a lion, the face of a calf, the face of a man, and the face of an eagle. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, there is an amazing resemblance in the Scripture there to these particular Uh, creatures that we are are talking about here in Revelation. And these were seen by Ezekiel as visions that God showed him of heaven. In fact, the, the, the reference there is so striking that it really couldn't be a coincidence. So Ezekiel had a vision in which he saw four... Now, this is in Ezekiel chapter 1, and you might want to, at a later time, go and read all of that section uh, from verse number 1 down to verse number 25. But I just want to read to you one verse. This is verse number 10, where he describes these creatures. He says, "...as for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and they four had the face of an ox on the left side, they four also had the face of an eagle." And so there, so there you see four different faces, the lion, the ox, which is the same as the calf that we have in Revelation. There's the face of a man and the face of an eagle. Well, there's several things that could be represented by those faces, but I think it's worthy for us to note that if everything else in the throne room speaks something about Christ and is a picture of him, then we should be able to see something about Christ in this as well. So what is the meaning of these different faces? Well, there are many people that believe this, and I agree with it as well, that these four different faces represent the gospel accounts of Christ, different views of Christ. Now, we studied in the book of John, and it took us about, uh, I think, a year, or a little bit more, a year and a half, maybe close to two years, I think it was, to get through John. And now we're studying in the book of Matthew. And as we studied in both of those gospels, I I told you that the gospel accounts give us a different view of Christ. Matthew is mainly concerned with Christ's kingship. So we have a picture here of a lion. What's a lion? Well, a lion is known as the king of beasts. And uh, in the ancient times, the lion has always been a symbol of ruling power. Kings would make statues of lions, and they'd put them outside of their palaces. And Jesus, who is the greatest of all kings, is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so that means that he's the greatest king that ever came out of Judah and the greatest of all kings. Then if we look at Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel presents Christ as a servant. And so we have here the ox. And what is an ox or the calf? Well, that's a dependable beast of burden. It's put into service. And Jesus is the one who came to this earth in the form of a servant. Then Luke portrays Jesus as uh, the Son of Man. And so he talks about the humanity of Christ... And what do we have here? We have a picture of a man's face, or a man's face on one of these creatures. And that shows us that Christ is deity veiled in human flesh. So that speaks of the incarnation of Christ, which, of course, is the greatest miracle that the world has ever seen. Then we come to the Gospel of John, and John speaks of Christ as the Son of God, the one who came down from heaven. Well, we have the face of an eagle, and an eagle soars in the heavens, and it swoops down to the earth. And so this face may be symbolic of Christ's divinity. So if that's what it represents, then I think that's just another way that we see how the Bible so perfectly fits together. Both Old and New Testaments come together, they blend together, and they give us the purpose of all created things. Now, then, number two here, something else that we might see, is the glory that's ascribed to Christ. Verse number nine says, And when those beasts... Give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So here we see that all of Creation is represented in all bows before Christ because He alone is worthy. Now, I like that little chorus that we sing, Thou art worthy, O Lord. And it says, Thou art worthy to receive honor, glory, and honor, and power. Thou hast created all things. This is what Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So this is the throne of God in heaven. And before we're through with this book, there will be no doubt in anyone's mind that what we must do is bow down before that throne. The Scripture says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what we're going to do. I mean, if you've not bowed before this throne, if you've not bowed the name your knee to Jesus, then I would tell you, you need to do that now. You need to do it now in salvation before you're made to do it in your destruction. This is the throne room of God. If you wonder why that Jesus Christ is the central focus of our preaching in Berean Baptist Church and we look to none other, it's because of the very scriptures just like we've read tonight. Jesus is the supreme. He's worthy of all honor and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you tonight. We are so thankful that you've allowed us to see what John saw for just a few moments, to see a vision, to see the written words here, what John saw that was in heaven. Lord, we thank you that you sit upon that throne, that you are the judge, you are a righteous judge. And we thank you, Lord, that because we have our faith in you, that you will deliver us from the wrath of your judgment. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would seriously consider what this chapter has to say and understand they must bow before you and put their faith and trust in you. Lord, bless in this time of invitation. and We give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.